Welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind Podcast with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today, I am so happy to have with us a real estate legend, someone who I am really honored to call my friend, Nikki Field. Nikki, hello and welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Michael Valdez. It is I that should be thanking you for sharing this this time as you are the mastermind in global real estate sales. And I am hoping to learn a great deal from our conversation today. You better produce. <laughs> Nikki, you are so amazing. You really are literally one of the top real estate professionals in the country. But before we get into the entire conversation about your legacy, your life, your career that you've built. Tell me how you got started in this industry. I don't think that enough people know the story. And it's for me, it's one of my favorite stories. Well, mine is actually not that unusual. Uh, real estate for me is a second act career like so many others who have gotten into it. Uh, I started uh, with training and a degree in marketing and spent uh, more than a decade doing that, uh, loving it. Marketing is the key stone to all sales. So I feel I got a great, great training in sales by my marketing expertise. I then did some something quite traditional, went off track for a couple of years uh, in an attempt to raise my two daughters. I say attempt because um, that really wasn't what I was very good at. And they certainly weren't enjoying their mother being uh, full throttle in their lives. Um, the clues are all there. I had to get back to having a, 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 a job that not only supported my um, my self-worth, but also got me out of the, the, the intensive lives I was increasingly in, in my two young daughters. So real estate sounded like the great opportunity, right? Part-time, do it when you want, um, have some fun, going to friends' homes. Um, that was the initial attraction. Boy, was it the wrong uh, perception. So I, I did go into real estate here in Manhattan, and I found that on day one, if you were going to do this job and do it right, it was not just full-time, it was overtime. Um, didn't mind that, um, had the energy for it, certainly had the interest in real estate, and had what so many successful people in residential real estate have, a vast network of potential clients. Uh, living and working in New York for, at that point, more than 20 years, I knew the Upper East Side well, and I knew the people that lived in, in the best homes, and I knew the people that were dearly craving to upgrade to even better homes. It was a perfect opportunity for me to hone my skills and then use that network. You know, it's some interesting, Nikki, because people, I think, that will be listening here and see what career you've built. We'll come back to those humble beginnings, but you've actually just sort of said two key things that are so pure in our industry. It really is that work ethic where you just come in and you put in the time, but also your vast network, you were actually smart enough to appreciate that. I think people look at their own sphere of influence, if you will, their family, their friends, and think, you know, I don't know anyone. And then you start looking and you start peeling that onion and you realize that you are starting with a, with a significant book. And what it is, it's that people trust you. And I think that there's always that, especially what you were saying earlier, coming from another industry, that thing of, how will they perceive me in this industry? How will they mm -hmm. trust me in this industry? How did you overcome that? Well, that is indeed, Michael, a critical obstacle. Um, there's so many of us that get into sales that do not want to be perceived as salespeople. Mm. Um, there is a, a, a clear um, resistance to put yourself out there as trying to make money off of your friends and associates. And right. that's understandable. So any new um, 
uh, new agents that might be listening to this podcast, uh, my, my strongest advice is don't focus on the sales. Focus on the information. With my friends, how I started was just talking about real estate, telling them about what I had just seen, not at all targeting them as being clients uh, or customers, but letting them know that I was learning quickly and deeply the insides of this what we often call in Manhattan in particular, uh, the porn industry. And I mean that very respectfully. People <laughs> adore and love and want to see the inside of homes uh, and how, the, um, how well-known people as well as successful people might live. So I had such great stories when I went to social events. I had just been in glamorous apartments or been privy to the information of a recent sale or um, the, a reason for a soon-to-be sale. So it was information that was interesting outside of most of my friends' um, uh, exposure. So I found that I quickly became in social events a center of, of interest. What's going on with that That property that's for sale. What's going on with um, that new building that's going up? So I first became the expert on real estate information. I was opening up for them the opportunity to say, oh, maybe you Maybe I should work with you. Um, would you work with me? Is this something you would do? And I think many salespeople have learned that that is absolutely the best way to do. Not selling is the most effective way to sell. And that is such a great secret. And that insight is so powerful where it's just focusing on information. You become the advisor. You don't go and sell. It was really, that's incredibly insightful. And by the way, you're still the center of most social events anyway. Um, but that's never left you. <laughs> I think for other reasons now. <laughs> she's still around. <laughs> no, she's built all of this. Amazing. This is really what we're talking um, about. And so I actually want to get to that. So you start in the industry, you start getting your career together, you start having your circle of friends trust you to help them with their real estate needs, and you've started growing and you've had great success. Now you actually have a very large team. You actually have one of the most successful teams in the country. You have the number one team in all of Sotheby's International Realty globally. At what point in your career did you realize that you needed a team and how did that evolve? Because that becomes, now you go from being a successful agent to really running a corporation. Your sales are more than some businesses do. So you're the CEO of your own company. At what point did you make that transition and that shift? Gee, Michael, I'm feeling so good about my success, according to the school of Michael Valdez. This just may be the climax of it. Thank you for all those accolades. But I think for most successful uh, self-made people, it's a slow, organic build. Um, mine was twofold. Um, if you recall, my background was in marketing. So I shamelessly at the beginning did self-branding and marketing. Um, it wasn't popular. It wasn't done in the, the 90s. It was all about the company brand and, and more importantly about um, the client and the customer product. Um, because we had, my husband and I, who has a really successful marketing agency, National, because he knew the uh, the technique for for raising a particular product to the exposure that a customer would gravitate to it through marketing, I started to do the same for my name in Manhattan real estate. Mm. So I, I was I was really concentrating in those first couple of years on on blatant self promotion. Um, you know, I got my name out there as often as possible uh, in in relation to real estate. Worked extremely hard in cultivating relationships with 
uh, the press. Reporters are all, always need to, to feed that beast. And I, again, reached back to my information. I made certain that I was current, I mean current that day, current on data, information, analysis that I could share with the press. The press then started coming to me on a regular basis asking for my advice. That exposure built volume sales. What I soon learned, because I've made many, many, many mistakes in this business, is that um, I was greedy. I was taking on all this work and not fully able to service it all. I had too much work. Um, And what is the, the great pitfall of too much work? You begin to disappoint your clients and customers. You don't finish out the, the goal. Uh, you have failures and you look around and go, what are look, these missed opportunities because I was overwhelmed. It didn't take me very long. It was after my, my second lost client that I realized that I needed help. And I think most teams, most corporations generally start with a partner. You bring in someone, which I did, who filled the void of, uh, of my weaknesses in particular. And I quickly globbed on to a great, great uh, new broker. Her name is Jillian Jolis. She also came out of uh, marketing, um, publishing marketing. And she was as new as I was. And together we decided to um, build some momentum and fill needs uh, fulfill the servicing of the business I was getting. We also at that time decided that specialization was going to give us more publicity and exposure. And that was totally unusual in my industry. Everyone was a generalist. And still today, many agents feel they have to be everything to everyone. Uh, Know the entire market at all levels, all price points, all calibers. And that does not breed quality experience or expert advice. You're just running too thin. So again, this is the long, long tail to getting to a team. But Jillian and I became medical office specialists. And how is that? In our first year, and small business coming to me, and that was mostly rentals and friends, secretaries, or in-laws, we were given a medical office to sell in a medical building. Uh, We did pretty well with that. Um, It was all of 130,000 volume. Value and we sold it in a couple of weeks for 150. So wow. our doctor, who was uh, retiring, and this was a major piece of his portfolio, was really pleased. He started spreading the word how successful we were. We worked in that building, and we became medical office specialists by sheer experience. That led us to buildings on Fifth and Park Avenue in New York that had private medical offices. We were now specialists. We were called specialists. We were advertising as specialists. And, and we were specialists. We understood that market quite well after a year. So that, so in selling the Fifth Avenue much more expensive offices, uh, we then had an inroad to the rest of the building. And clients started calling us from within those Fifth Avenue buildings and Park Avenue buildings on upper levels, asking us to present and represent them. Um, that led us to becoming co-op specialists on the Upper East Side. Why did we pivot? Because co-ops were far more expensive, there was greater return and profit, and that was the market we were in that was on fire. Um, those penthouse, that, that those co-op specialists led us then to finding townhouse specialists, becoming, excuse me, townhouse specialists. Um, some co-op buyers were coming from townhouses and they were also looking at townhouses. We were fortunate enough to have a couple townhouses that were thrown at us. We soon began began marketing as townhouse specialists. What did this all mean? We needed people to help us show, present, market, and carry this volume of business. That's when we started bringing in people, not experienced brokers, but people that we wanted to train, new people that had no bad skills, in my, uh, according to my analysis, but would learn our skills. Julian and I would train them and teach them our voice, our presentation manner, our level of best practices, and we expected them to perform in the same manner. They were able then to build on that, that training and help us carry this heavy load quickly. What did that mean? 
build it out even further. And I really strongly believe in the formula of teams. Uh, teams not only help you manage and close volume business, it also is the incubator and the motivator in the culture of the team that builds the confidence and the experience for all the members. It's about sharing your information, sharing your experience, and helping others fly, which benefits the the other team members. I know this was all very esoteric, but that was the theory and the strategy behind it. And I think that's a go ahead, please. And I think that's a theory and the strategy from all businesses. I mean, Jeff Bezos started, as we all know, in his garage with his wife, so he brought on a couple neighbor boys, and then a couple interns. And um, I don't presume, obviously, to be even reaching for anything at, at the Bezos level, but it certainly says that formula works for people that are willing to share, teach, and expand. And that's so, that's so true. You know, I, as you know, I had a, a, a team when I was selling real estate um, in Miami, and it was that idea of looking at that expertise. I came from a banking world, and so my focus, you know, I didn't grow up in Miami, so I didn't have all of the people that were generational in Miami that were buying the uh, the homes on the private island. So I actually came from a global book of business from um, from banking, and I said, I'm going to leverage that. And so I actually reached out to my former clientele and was positioning Miami real estate almost as a as a financial instrument. And a lot of my foreign clients saw it as either a currency hedge or as a way to really expand and diversify their own portfolio holdings. And for me, it was once I started gaining traction with international buyers coming into the South Florida market, my needs as yours had to grow. And so I started with a team and then my team wanted to really focus on a lot of different areas. And then I focused them on farm areas. But we had a team of eight, and we would have daily meetings, which is very unusual in in Miami. And then what would happen was that if somebody wanted a farm area, if anyone across from from them at that table asked a question that that team member couldn't answer, I would not give them that farm area because they needed to be the expert. And it wasn't me being difficult. It was the fact that we had a, a global clientele. And if that client had questions in a finite period of time and they didn't have the answer from us, they would find that answer elsewhere. Without a doubt. It, it, many people say to me, how, how do you uh, decide which team members work on which um, uh, projects? And it's never about need. It's never about who's the most available, um, who needs the business. It's who is ahead in that specialization who's the person that's in that specific market arena that can elevate the presentation that you together are giving and clearly deliver to the client the expertise that they need to have the biggest success uh, possible in this transaction it's all about presenting those credentials and you did an extraordinary job with it because you were one of the first that I remember reading about and then looking forward to meeting the treated real estate as a financial investment rather than a buying a home transaction. And boy, that's what we've evolved to. Uh, certainly, we well know that there's literally no one in the market that we touch that isn't leading with understanding and needing to present the best financial condition for this transaction rather than the emotional hook that used to pull them in. Absolutely. And, you know, it was really interesting because I came from a financial point of view into this industry. And I remember one of the questions I used to ask my clients was, what is your exit strategy? And it was really interesting because no one had ever asked them that. And, you know, they, they, it made them start thinking about it in a different way. And not only did they think of it in a different way, 
they saw me in a different light at that point because of the fact that we were looking at it as a financial instrument. So I think that was a really interesting approach to that as well. Well, it was you were your timing was correct because the value of real estate was jettisoning. Sure. Uh, and it wasn't a small part of, of people's portfolio. It was now becoming, you know, a significant one. And it was the birth of the hunger for real estate. We well know that even in, in the 90s, most people, most high net people owned average two properties, two residential properties. Well, how that changed between the mid-90s to the to mid-2000s was this appetite for buying and enjoying multiple pieces, building up that portfolio of residences, and then it was critical that they had a financial advisor because they were making decisions faster at higher price points, and they could not afford to make mistakes. And also looking at it from a global perspective. So as you know, this podcast is global in nature. And you know that I travel something ridiculous like 200 days a year. And you actually seem to rival my schedule a bit, Miss Field, in the fact that we see each other in Hong Kong or in London or someplace else around the world. And you get on a plane a lot. And I know that you realize that obviously New York is a global brand. But tell me how important that global buyer is to your business. Essential. That's it, in one word. Um, How did that start? Uh, For me, um, 2008, the Lehman crash. Sure. Uh, nothing was happening in Manhattan. My local buyers were paralyzed. There was a tremendous amount of, of uh, financial upheaval in their lives, both business and personal. Um, this had to be sorted out, and it clearly looked in 2008 that it was going to take a while. Um, so I looked around, and I had a very big team at that time. I was 15 in 2008. And wow. my my job is to feed this team, to sure. have business for them to service. They certainly were qualified and very experienced now what we're going to do. So I don't think uh, it was unusual. Many others uh, saw this option. I decided to follow the money. Yep. Nothing was in New York. Get on a plane and find out where opportunities were going to be in selling U.S. real estate along with making connections. Um, So I would have a foundation, again, as an expert for U.S. real estate. We we started off, um, my partner, my senior partner, Kevin Brown, and I, our first trip was to mainland China. And China was rising. This was, again, 2008. There was a lot of money moving at that time offshore, and we decided to, to... go all in in Asia. We took Chinese language lessons. We took Chinese culture lessons. We cultivated every banker we could be introduced to here on the East Coast that had banking relationships with mainland China, uh, mainland China wealth advisors. Uh, we specifically chose China after touring must have much of Asia, um, understanding that there was movement and interest in U.S. real estate because of the opportunity. But the reason we honed in on it in particular had to do with um, January 2009, the International Herald Tribune ranked the uh, best opportune urban markets in the world. And uh, New York was number seven. Wow. Number seven, which wow. really in in urban areas was a huge hit for for New York. But what does it present? Opportunity. We took that article and used it as we traveled, not just in Asia, but South America, Eastern and Western Europe, um, and had those talking points. Mainland China was the one that really globbed onto it. Opportunity, only number seven. I can skip over Hong Kong. I can skip over London and Paris, uh, Singapore and Munich and hit the opportunity market of New York. That's what we sold. And that's where we were extremely successful in. This very, very significant sales in Asia for the next five years led us to open up other uh, desks. India, the Middle East, 
Moscow, um, and my most recent opportunity, which is about to be signed in South America, Mexico, and uh, Colombia combined. There's still a tremendous draw because of security, uh, wealth security for international buyers to buy in the U.S. What does that mean, particularly in a market like New York that Hyped up in 2014, 15, 16. By the way, June 2016 was the height of the of the U.S. Uh, residential market. We had to find other opportunities. As people landed in New York and might not be able to afford it or find the right opportunity, we needed a network of of real estate advisors throughout the country to hand off to, to deliver those transactions uh, through credibility uh, and treating them as the VIP uh, clients that they had be- become with us. So you just alluded to something which is uh, something that you do which is incredibly unique. Your international desks in your team, it's something that I don't know anyone else that, that did it. I would think you probably started this and now there's a few people that, that copy this model. But explain, please, to the listeners what the international desks are with your team and how that works within your team. Well, with pleasure, because it's, it's been such a shot of adrenaline uh, for us here in uh, on the field team. Um, when Referring back to in 2008 and 9, I had been introduced to an HSBC banker who was private client, uh, senior vice president of private client services, Asia, New York. So he's handling really valuable HSBC um, uh, investors coming, exiting out of Asia, specifically mainland. Thailand, Hong Kong, and Singapore. He, through that friendship, and his name is Daniel Chang, he made extraordinary inroads for us by, by setting up introductions to other private bankers in Asia. That's how we hit gold. Um, do you remember when, um, uh, when we once spoke about, maybe we will have time again in this podcast, to talk about the, the level of our industry? Um, salespeople are not nearly as highly regarded or respected as uh, financial advisors. And in China, a real estate broker was valued way below a a sanitation um, professional. I mean, there's no license needed. Everybody could sell real estate. And there was a propensity to misrepresenting and lying there. So it was very difficult to make inroads as a real estate broker. Being introduced as the uh, advisor to a bank representative gave us credibility. Wealth advisors were very comfortable with the information and the product we presented to them which made them even more comfortable to introducing us to their clients. So this single um, door opener, Daniel Chang, was really extraordinarily um, uh, responsible for the effect and the the success that we had in uh, those early years of transition. Uh, after working with Daniel so closely, we were able to give him an offer that got him out of banking and into real estate. His offer was he would head the field team Asia Desk, meaning that his name was at the top. He was going to be continuing what he had done on the bank side, but for us, um, delivering even more value to my desk and giving him a concentrated objective of working in these real estate sales projects. It was beneficial to him. It was a huge uh, return for us. And Daniel Chang and the Asia Desk became the model of what we copied with our other continents. So think about that for a moment, Nikki. I think you need to give yourself a lot of credit here. Let's go back to what the culture is in China for a real estate agent, because we won't even call them a real estate professional, the average age is 24 years of age. And the average lifespan of a real estate agent in mainland China is eight months. The turnover is horrific. Whereas that in the long, United States, eight months. Eight months, that long, exactly. <laughs> Whereas in the United that, States. That, those are the good ones. 
Those are the good ones. In the United States, the stat is that the average age is 54 years of age, and the average lifespan of an agent is over a decade. So where they see it as a career in the U.S., and it's seen as a stepping stone, if you will, in mainland China, to then have somebody from mainland China come in that was in a very exalted profession like banking, as it is in, in China, to then have that full circle come back and now is actually working as a real estate professional because it's actually more lucrative for him because of what you've built is an extraordinary testament to what you have built. So kudos to you. Right time, right markets, right people, right um, goals. It really was. Don't forget, we were talking about a massive transition in economic investment thinking. People were investing outside of their comfort zone. Sure. People were moving money outside of what they knew and taking a risk, and they needed experience, trusted, um, well, um, well-credentialed advisors. We were really, really fortunate to see that the birth of that massive international wealth transition and be a part of it. And I have continued strong belief that it will be a, a, a ongoing part of many people's investment portfolios. You know, we've said this word a few times now in this in this conversation, and it's something that you and I have discussed many times over the years. It is what is on your business card, and you are a global advisor on your card. You are not a real estate professional. You are not a real estate salesperson. You are not a broker, yet you are all those things. You are a global advisor, and that is so key. And that is something that anyone listening can take that away because when you are looking at someone or when you're sitting across from someone, you don't want somebody to be a salesperson or a broker. That signifies somebody who is transactional. If you are an advisor, you are a relationship person. You are someone who will work generationally, which you have done so expertly with your clients. And it is not about making a transaction. It is about certainly being an advisor and part of that family generationally. Long term is the goal. When you sit in front of that potential client or his advisor, it is you must erase the thought of selling something. Absolutely. Your goal is to establish the relationship, establish your credibility, and strategically work with them for long term investments. We are fortunate here at the field team to 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 be able to um, service as, just as you've mentioned, generations of our clients. We're now into grandchildren. Wow. Um, Grandfathers are handing over not only their children, uh, but their their granddaughters and grandsons uh, as far as buying their first home or making their first um, real estate investment. And, and we're being presented as family advisors now, and that's critical for us. It's critical to the succession of my business as well. Absolutely, and we'll get to, to that in just a second, but I want to go back to your business model. For a moment, you started talking about really focusing on uh, specialties in the marketplace, and I want to talk about new developments for a moment. You recently had a 100% sellout of one of the most premier buildings here in the city, 212 Fifth Avenue, and it had a very uh, famous uh, um, uh, seller of the penthouse, which we uh, can't discuss, but I'm sure someone can Google. Uh, and so this is unheard of in current market conditions to have a 100% sellout of a prestigious building like that. What was the key to that success? Very hard work. <laughs> Always lead with that. Always leave it at that. Uh, for, for your listeners that are, are not um, current on the Manhattan real estate market, it is very challenging. We, we've just seen nine straight quarters of, of decline, and that's all due to an abundance, massive inventory. Uh, again, 
all roads lead back to 2008. Sure. Investors started coming to the U.S., uh, specifically developers, uh, building, building, and more building of large condominiums. So our inventory is ballooned, and where are we now? We have this massive um, abundance of inventory and far less buyers because of the oversupply. Uh, what does that mean for us it, 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 at this level? Uh, it means a real focus on the best in the market. Right. So developers, through my marketing and exposure of having the international clients have come to not only myself but also my brand, which is Sotheby's International Realty, because they're continuing to look outside of the local market for their buyers to fill up these big, empty buildings. We've... I, I've been fortunate enough that on the team we've had many, many developers come to us and asking us if we could take over, be the second wives per se, um, reinvent their building and get it sold. So we're very, we're fortunate enough that we're able to be particular about what we choose. In this particular case, it's almost three years ago, um, the sponsors of 212 came to us. Um, they had an unsuccessful first run with their representatives. Now, the representatives are classic develop, sales and developer team. What does that mean? That means a um, homegrown group of professionals that sell only new development. They live in that new development. They're part of the pre-planning. They know that project inside and out. They're focused on only that. And they support the, the sponsors and developers in closing out those deals. Well, that was not working in New York three years ago any longer. Uh -huh. there was, uh, what we felt strongly when they came to me was that I was going to use a new formula or model, which is the resale broker. I didn't want to take the, the experienced new development um, broker, who, by the way, is generally on salary. And, and this is a great niche for people entering the market, being a new development broker, because they learn the business, they have the confidence of a regular income, and they do not have to worry about performing for commission levels, which is really tough in any challenging market. So in the, in the resale broker model, I decided to choose along with myself, three other top performing brokers. I took um, a, a top 10 broker here in my office, Kevin Brown, he actually is on my team, and the two top performing brokers in our downtown office, Mar Flash Bloom and Brad Ingalls. And I approached them and I said, uh, I know this may be threatening to you, not I want to take you off of your very lucrative resale uh, run, but uh, I'd love you on board for this product. I felt that if the four of us together could appropriate our time individually. So we have a top broker on the project uh, at all times, while well, the rest of us were managing and maintaining our other businesses. You know, the, the, the danger of taking on a new development is it's at the sacrifice of your, of your homegrown business, and it can take you off the focus and the time um, needed to continue to build your business. So with this formula and these three other brokers, we all agreed to equally um, take on this project, give it the, the added value that an experienced, long-term professional has above the on-site resale broker. What does that mean? We're much better at our job. Uh, when we're in that building, we have the experience of knowing what's going on outside that building. The on-site broker doesn't. He only knows that cocoon. We know where the other buyers are. We know what they're looking at. We know the competition inside and out. And we know the personality of our competition, meaning who needs to sell, who's going to be negotiating deeper. So we knew the touchstones when a client would come through that property of how to compete with the competition, which was the most important element. Competing with the competition when a buyer, when a $12 million buyer, let's say, has more than and 70 other options of sure. equal quality. So we, through our experience, were able to transfer that to the new development, sell this product fast and heavily 
through our negotiating skills. I, I will credit us with having a, a, a bit more um, uh, experience in negotiating than those those younger new development teams. And we were able to woo them away from our competitors, lock them in on this project, and deliver a half a billion dollar um, sellout with the average sales price coming within 3% of the asking price when our competitors were lowering their transactions to between 27 and 30% of the asking prices. It was a slam dunk, huge hit in our market. And we intend to continue that formula where needed on other projects. And I remember you created such excitement on this building um, when the premiere of the building came out, you actually uh, asked me to MC that event, which was extraordinary. And it was uh, amazing to see what you did there. There were hundreds of people there, uh, probably about four or 500 people there. And it was incredible to see that amount of excitement for a, a real estate property. I mean, it was, it, it was basically you, it was, it was the thing to go to and it became a social event. And it was, I think, brilliant the way that you marketed this, that it was something that everyone, everyone was talking about. Well, it was a, the unveiling of a significant property. Property, yeah. um, getting them in as a first look. But you've touched on something that I was remiss on when I was talking about the advantages of having that resale model. Um, the on-site brokers just didn't have the extensive network that the four of us had. Through a combined 100 years of selling, uh, we knew everyone. We yeah. each had deep press relations. We had deep um, uh, broker relations, and we had multiples of significant client relations. So we were able to offer this invitation to the crim of Manhattan to get them into this first look. And they were rubbing their shoulders with others that they wanted to meet or knew. And through that exposure, that absolutely delivered more than 20% of our, our on our upcoming sales. Word of mouth, guess where I was, social postings, the press that followed it, garnered more interest, the phone calls became really volume calls, I want to get in, I want to get my client in, hey, I'm thinking about moving downtown, I heard about your party, I want to see that property. (laughs) In this, in all markets, I believe, being creative about getting your property Overexposed is extremely important, and I believe that overexposure is an attribute because we need to remind people of what's out there and draw them in. You know, I think the other key thing that you do is transparency. You give the consumer all the information. You give them the data. You do a market report which I think is one of the best I've ever seen. It's used by investors all over the world. I have actually been in offices where uh, globally, where people are looking at your market report to look at decision-making for New York real estate. So I think that that is another key factor of yours. And I want to just focus on that market report for a second. Um, tell me how that came about, because it, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier um, with the idea of real estate and giving some financials behind it, looking at it as an investment, not a pure emotional play, but actually an investment as part of your portfolio. And you give somebody that market report, you give them that data, that transparency, when did you start the market report? You know, it's been incredibly successful for you and a game changer and a differentiator of you um, in the marketplace. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, the market report was conceived actually by my husband, who I mentioned earlier is a, um, a career marketing professional. And a and, genius. Uh, I actually know him quite well, as you know, and I'm a great fan of Stephen. <laughs> He 
he adores you deeply, and I have no doubt that when he needs some real estate advice, he'll be going to you rather than his wife. <laughs> I doubt that. Um, <laughs> but, but again, it was a marketing tool of establishing, um, getting my name out there, establishing myself uh, above my competitors. Uh, early in the game, when, when more sophisticated financial investors were, were really honing in on multiple real estate investments. It was clear to us that these sophisticated buyers were being driven by data, yes. um, not emotional decisions, even if they were buying for themselves. It was always about the data. The very first question was about the market conditions, the market performance, and the market direction. I had to hone in very quickly with a number of um, financial um, advisors uh, advi uh, giving me really extraordinary um, input on what are the touchstones of speaking to a, a potential client about driving uh, him forward. Exit strategy, as you mentioned, Michael, is a lead on this. Okay, I hear what you're saying. What is the exit strategy? They need to know that we're buying in to their long-range plans. So to go back to the market report, um, I found that in the last 10 years, emotion rarely delivered a buyer or a seller. It could have been part of it. I mean, the pretty picture might have been a reason that they give you a call right. and the extraordinary amenities offered. And, you know, we keep uh, pumping those up um, and making new development and new buildings even more exciting to the potential buyer. Um, but the most important part of them going to the next level was the market analysis, critical to him him or she actually participating in the transaction. And then the next step was the critical market data about that specific goal property. Uh, and we have to pivot. It's very organic. Uh, the bank or WealthX uh, or a agency report is quarterly. I needed data hourly. Sure. Uh, what was reported in the press last week was not what was happening in, in that sector or that parameter often of what he's looking at because I know that a deal was just signed minutes ago, yesterday, last week, or someone backed out of that townhouse contract. That data is extremely important in real-time analysis of the vulnerability of the of the seller and, and the opportunity for the purchaser. So we lead with data, we massage with data, we close with data, and, which is really important, we follow up with data. So after the transaction is done, we're really all in on following up with our clients, letting them know what that purchase has done to their portfolio. Down and up, they get a monthly report from me of how I analyze what they just purchased with me. And sometimes that's a hard, hard um, analysis to send along, uh, letting them know that, that the value of that property has just dropped another 2%, but the conditions that permeated that are explained so they understand the long run strategy of, of pivoting on what we're going to do with that exit plan. You know, I think that that's brilliant. And I want to, um, there was a story that you shared with me about not only the data that you follow, but also the data that you do with your network. And we'll get to that question in a second. But there was a story in particular that you had shared with me about a client in Paris. And they were watching a, um, their own portfolio that they had for their properties in France. And you were looking at something for them. Um, and it was a, something that came up in their same building. And they didn't even know about it. And you're sitting in New York and you're telling them about the market in Paris. Can you share that story? Uh, I don't know if you can share details, but can you share a little bit about that in a, in a more general concept? Well, generally, what I decided to do uh, when I had my new title, Global Portfolio Advisor, is to be one. So, as particularly with investors, so we knew that we're, we're probably going to continue to add to their residential portfolios. As we would exit a deal, 
with a new client, I would ask them for a directory of all of their residential real estate holdings. Um, and we do through conversations, I knew through conversations, that they were plentiful in most cases. In the one you're referring to, this is actually a Canadian who now re- resides in Zurich. And he had done seven investment deals with me, um, uh, five of them in New York and two in Miami. Uh, great returns, always um, uh, loyal to uh, not only using me, but seeking out my advice. It took me a few years, but I finally got him to give me the directory of everything he owned. And the guy had 19 private residences. Wow. Um, uh, and these weren't counting the investment ones that I had put him into. Uh, things that he collected in his travels. He had a large family, and he would use them, and he had many clients. And he found that they were all valuable. Uh, and some of them he would trade, some, some areas he would exit. Um, when his secretary emailed over these 19 current residences, I called him and I said, now I'm going to tell you why I needed them. I said, um, you're a pretty busy guy, and I know you have relationships in all these 19 different areas of the world, but I'm going to be the portfolio advisor to you. I said, I may be in New York. I said, but my uh, relationships in every one of these 19 areas, plus uh, you can add on another few hundred, are deeper than yours. I know the totality of the market movement as well as the potential for market growth where you are. And I'm just going to watch it. And he said, okay, do that for me. And I said, as your advisor, there's, of course, no charge. I'm interested, and I just want to keep you up to date on what's going on. So we had a short conversation on all 19 of them. And he happened to say to me, this one in Paris, don't bother following. I have no interest in its growth or potential. It's my favorite one. I will die there. It's my favorite home. I I I would couldn't believe that I I was able to secure it. Um, it really is the jewel in the crown. And I said, it was a smart investment. Obviously, you're enjoying uh, living there, but I'm still going to keep my eye on it. Uh, what I do do then is because of this vast global network of real estate brokers is I let every single person I know uh, who heads that market in those 19 areas about this warm lead. I'm not divulging any information as of the identity of my client, but I'm telling them where he owns or generally where he owns. Just keep me um, current on any market changes. I want to be the first to share it with him. His local broker may not be doing that, and I just want to let him know that through you, I'm current on what's going on in that market. My partners in these regions are very um, uh, uh, fluid in sharing this information and know how valuable it is in potentially unearthing ongoing referrals to them. So I, I get this information regularly. I distribute it to my, my clients. It may be just a line or two on, do you know what's sold across the street? Um, do, you, do you know about the new zoning regulations in your district? Just keeping you current. So back to the Paris property. Four months after him revealing that he owned this, I get a call from our our. Uh, affiliate owner. He said, you're not, you know your guy who owns in that building, which is the prime triple A building in all of Paris. He said, any chance he might be interested in buying a penthouse there? Well, I have no idea, but I certainly will find out. I asked the owner of the affiliate uh, how much it is. And he said, well, it's not on the market. He just had a conversation with him, but the guy would sell at this number. I call Zurich. I call my guy. uh, And I say, Hello, you know your property in Paris, and I, I heard the, a bit of rudeness and abruptness in his voice. I think you don't tell me. I have no interest. I don't care what's happening there. I love that property. I'm never selling it. I said to him, ah, but would you consider moving three floors up? A long pause. I, now I have his attention. He said, mm. tells. I said, yeah. He said, how much? I tell him. He said, get it. The, the deal was done, basically, in under an hour. My uh, network uh, partner then took his property, put it on the market, and we sold that. He secured the penthouse. That was doing business where there should have been no business. There was no sign of business, but it was an opportunity that I had that my value client didn't. And I will tell you that I get letters from him, letters, not emails, on a regular basis 
thanking me again for that opportunity. That is a true global advisor. You're sitting in New York. You are, he's sitting in Zurich and you're doing a transaction in his building in Paris that he did not even know about. Yeah, it, it really was a sweetheart. And we've continued to do that on a regular basis, finding business where there isn't. When someone hears something compelling about a home that they have or or an area that they should be buying in. I'm constantly hearing from people that want another resort home, whether it's you know in the islands or in the Alps. Um, keep an eye out. And if I hear there is an opportunity or a, a market change, I'm passing along that information. My guy may decide, okay, I'm not going to be purchasing in uh, Lake Como even though you've been following it for me. But since you know about Italy, what's happening on the East Coast? Uh, So he's coming to me now as a source. We find out immediately. It's a one-stop operation for, uh, for finding tidbits, essential information on global real estate. Uh, It's working really well. So I just want to stay on that topic for a second. Um, I know that your network uh, comes from a large number of your colleagues, and you said something, I think it was a 60% of your business comes from referrals, which I think is extraordinary. Um, How do you maintain and and continue to build that network? Well, that's the growth network, so that's my focus. My eye is on that ball. Um, It started in 2010. Uh, I was was traveling in 2008. There was nothing happening uh, then. 2009, we started making the deals. The closings were 2010. 2010, and of course, we tracked this. Um, 12% of my team sales was now um, referrals, uh, up from 7%, which was a healthy number. This is all you know, uh, whipped cream on, on your local market, deals that you wouldn't normally be doing. There was a strong increase year over year from 2010. In 2018, we were up to 68% of our team's 300 million in sales was from referrals. Now that's a whole separate business. We were selling well in our local market and clearly living here, working here, operating here. It is a focus, but when you see the, the abundance and opportunity outside of your local market, you pivot your focus, your direction, your energy, and your investment funds go to those referrals. And what does that mean? Just like you do, Michael Valdez, traveling as much as possible, building those relationships, talking about New York opportunities, finding out about the opportunities that are in the, uh, that originated in in our our partnerships areas, coming back with information, data, analysis to talk the talk, to be the specialist to build up the, the energy, the fuel, and the momentum of people buying outside of your local area. That's, that's perfect. I, in the interest of time, I'm just gonna ask you a couple of more questions, but I always love asking this question of my guests. What's the greatest lesson you've learned from one of your failures? Oh, oh, oh the many <laughs> failures? No, I doubt oh. that. No, no, they're seriously, I mean, we, we once, we had fun in the team, uh, we, uh, just about a year ago, because we were feeling pretty cocky, I said to the team, here's the exercise, I want you to write down all of your losses, not just the listings that you've lost and the deals that you've lost, I want, I want to hear about how you really screwed up and why and what you learned from it. Uh, we had pages and pages and pages of hysterically funny and and desperately sad recounts of 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 deals and, and bad uh, decisions that were made, all of which we learned from. Um, much of it was rooted in hubris. Mm. The tendency after a successful deal for any salesperson is often, oh, aren't I great? Right. Wasn't I good? I'm so smart. I'm the best negotiator out there. You know, people love me. I mean, it's it's a win always brings that excitement of gosh, I 
really did persevere. Uh, it tends in my industry to color a lot of, of brokers' attitudes about how they transact after that. And it can cut off relationships because of that tendency to, to overextend your, your, um, your degree of success. But to be succinct, which I'm not usually, I'll tell you about a story that really brought it back to me. In 2012, I know what I was wearing. I know what the weather was. Uh, it was actually, I mean, uh, my, it was not a good hair day. Um, I had a, I had a, a Russian buyer um, who, through his, uh, through the referral, I had done three really strong deals out of Moscow. He was a friend of someone who recently purchased. Uh, his representatives told me he was coming in on a specific date. It was over the Christmas holiday. We changed, my family changed our, um, our plans and stayed in town for the December 26th showing. I took him up. Um, he, he was really focused because we had done our, our preset on one specific building. It was it was selling like hotcakes, 157 West 57th Street. It was of the course. newest, shiniest yep. new development, and, and it was the uh, reason that we have a whole strip of Manhattan called Billionaire's Row. We were selling billionaires. This was a billionaire, and he was going to buy in that building. So I knew what he wanted. I knew what the right fit was for him, so I preset it. He and his entourage, and there was quite an entourage, uh, visited the sales office, and because we knew we were going to do that deal, we got special uh, approval to go up into the building, which was unusual then, to see the views. We decided on a, a property, he decided on a, one of the two that I knew he would buy, uh, which was on the 57th floor. $34 million, uh, got up to that view. It was still raw space. He was in love. We did the deal standing there in front of the window with the developer's representative. We, we knew what he was, the strike number was. We got him to the strike number. Done. Hubris kicked in. God, wasn't this easy. We were on our way to lunch. We were going to celebrate. He has a big family. I knew about uh, a two-bedroom unit that had just become available because I had sold up somebody in the building who had a two, and we had decided to move them to a three, so the Friday before the two became available, it wasn't listed. In the elevator on the way down, I said to him, you know, you might want to pick up another unit for guests. There's a two-bedroom that's not on the market. It was all of $12 million. He said, yeah, that's a really good idea. Uh, I turned to the, the rep and said, let's go look at that two-bedroom. The view was fine. It was a $12 million opportunity that he was able to secure a little over $11 million. Well, This was an unexpected you know, home run. I was taking the whole retinue. None of them spoke. English out to out to lunch. Uh, we headed to lunch. We're having a great old time. I'm buying magnums of champagne. I'm feeling really good about the market. I'm feeling really good about my new relationship. Uh, at the end of lunch, he turns to me and said, "Do we really need the big one?" Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. That was that was my thought. I'm looking at the magnums. I'm looking at how much I just spent. <laughs> I, I canceled a trip to Barbados for this. Oh, my goodness. And uh, uh, I'll tell you, I wasn't very quick on the response. I wasn't adequate on the response. Um, I gave him all the reasons why I thought that, obviously, he wanted to be in there with his friends. He wanted to use it as a client opportunity. He was buying one of the last of the large units. Got a really good insider's friends and family deal. Um, the, the combo would be opportune, but to step away from the larger one would be a missed opportunity. Think about it, I said, and let's chat tomorrow. Okay, tomorrow came. He said, go forward. I just want the two-bedroom. Big wow. mistake. Hubris. We never should have stopped on that floor. I never should have uh, wanted to um, step up. What I could have done, and this is the lesson, lock in the $34 million one, call him after that, 
and say, by the way, you might want to have this additional property and see if I could deliver it. Big mistake. Never did that one again. But I must say, you are, with all of your success, and I think this actually um, is part of your success, you are probably one of the most humble people that I've ever met. And that in this industry is very rare. And uh, you are a dear friend, and I think your humility is really one of your most amazing traits. Well, I'm not sure I agree with you, but I'm so happy that you feel that. You don't need to. (laughs) (laughs) So I have one final question for you. And again, I'm sorry to take so much of your time, but this conversation has just flowed. And I just looked down at my watch and I just realized that we've been on for quite some time. And I know that you're incredibly busy and I thank you for your generosity of your time. But my last question for you is what is the legacy you would like to leave, Nikki Field? I think we, we've we've actually discussed it quite a bit in this past hour, Michael. Um, I really feel strongly that for my team and the environment that I've been working with, that I've helped elevate not just the skill sets of the average uh, real estate broker, but the reputation of the professional. I think we've helped move from fast-talking, slippery salesperson to becoming a valued financial advisor. That's really important to me that this this industry, the people that uh, perform in it, the people that choose to make it their lifelong careers, support their families, um, understand that it's it's a very respected one now. It's not an easy one. You need strong skill sets. You have to work extremely hard, but it's one to be proud of and to succeed in. Nikki, thank you so much for really spending the hour with me for really sharing and being so transparent in you are you're, you are literally one of the top real estate professionals in the country and for you to really be so generous with your ideas to the audience i am so appreciative and thank you thank you for your friendship and thank you really for your guidance today Oh, Michael, thank you. And I hope that I performed well enough so I can collect for that lunch you promised me. (laughs) That is without a doubt. And for all of you, thank you very much for listening. This is the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind Podcast with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Thank you all very much for joining. And we are out. 